Congratulations. Thanks, Mom. Yeah, great job, kiddo. Thanks, Grandpa. So, what's your 15-year plan? Oh, no, not this again. Do you have a job yet? Give me some time. Every time he comes over, he makes me feel like a kid again. Uh, I don't know. Jobs seem hard. Your estimated wait time is 97 minutes. 97 minutes? Come on! All right, here it is. I pulled the MLS data on this luxurious short self, and it seems to be priced pretty appropriately, according to the CMA, and depending on your DP, you may not even have to pay PMI. Huh? Who's on Parker's desk? I just went. Bro. It's not working. The only choices I have is a lion, wagon, and zebra. Sounds like you're gonna lose. She really is beautiful. Thank you, Doc. Congratulations again. Thank you. you got it from here, okay? All right, bye-bye. Bye. Bye. Honey? Honey? Sir, what's your number? What number? Next. The test results are in. The diagnosis is rheumatoid arthritis. What's a rumored artist? Um, excuse me? Yes? I thought refills on juice were free. Um, I'll go ask my manager. Good. Oh my gosh, I am so sorry. Oh my goodness, are you okay? Adulting is hard. I love this graphic, and the reason I like the graphic is because some of us can relate with the person who's laying here on the ground, and some of us can relate with the person who's dragging the person laying there on the ground, can't we? And they usually marry each other. It's so funny how that works. Uh, I had somebody stop me last week and say, I thought this series was going to be all about you telling everybody to suck it up. No, 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 that's not what we're going to do. But if that's you, then I, I get that. You feel like you're dragging people around all the time. Adulting just refers, at least in our culture, adulting typically refers to all the responsibilities that you didn't have to worry about when you were a kid, and then you get older and you suddenly realize you have to worry about. And in some respect for all of us, whether we feel like everybody should just suck it up or not, in some respect for all of us, we all struggle with certain things from time to time. You know, it may not be making sure the taxes are paid and making sure the, the oil gets changed and all of that kind of stuff. But all of us have different elements that make adulting a little bit difficult. But quite honestly, I don't think those things, as challenging as they may be or frustrating as they may be at times, let's be honest, those aren't really the things that make life so hard. What I suggested last week was simply this. It's what rattles around inside our hearts that keeps us from adulting well. The things that really make adulting difficult are the things behind the scenes and beneath the surface. When you start to think about why you have the financial problems you have, this is actually why. It's not the financial problems. It's not the revenue problem. It's not the, I need to get paid more money. When you really dig into it, financially, the reason people struggle financially is because there's some stuff rattling around in their hearts. Underneath the surface, you know, behind the scenes, it's creating all those problems or the relational problems we have. There's some stuff behind the scenes, beneath the surface, it's creating all of that. Professionally, if you're running into difficulties professionally and it feels like no matter what job you end up in or what company you work for, the same thing happens. Maybe, just maybe, it's because there's some stuff inside of you and it's not their fault and their fault and their fault and you just had a bunch of bad bosses. The fact that we repeat the same mistakes over and over again, have you ever noticed this? It makes no sense whatsoever, but we have all done it. You just end up making the same mistake again and again and again. That all uh, traces back 
to this simple idea that there is some stuff rattling around inside of us. It's the stuff that none of us want to address. It's it's the stuff none of us want to look in the mirror and go, yep, that's in me, and I think that's the root problem because we'd rather blame as change. But that's the stuff going on inside of us that makes it so hard. So last week, we talked about one of those issues, which is relational conflict. All of us deal with relational conflict. All of us know what that feels like. Some of you have been in the middle of it this week. Some of you, it's an ongoing thing with a relationship or a set of relationships. And what we learned last week was simply the only appropriate response to conflict is humility, which is very counterintuitive and which we all tend to resist when we hear. But the reason that's true is very simply because all of us are going to need grace ourselves at some point. And grace flows down to the humble. It never flows up to the proud. Pride never resolved any relational conflict. Now, what we're going to do today is just pick up where we left off in that conversation. So if you weren't here last week, you can catch up on the app or go to our website and and catch up on that if you want to. Because today I want to talk about a related subject, a continuation of relational conflict, if you will. But it is equally difficult. And let me just preface it before we jump into it by saying this. Whether you're a Christian or not a Christian or, you know, you follow Jesus or you're not sure, you know, wherever you are and all that, you take it seriously, you don't really. Uh, Most of what I'm going to talk about today applies to all of us, so it really doesn't matter what you believe. So if you're not a church person, you couldn't have picked a better day to come. Most of this is going to apply to all of us. Actually, all of it will apply to all of us, but most of it is directed to all of us. Then I'm going to talk at the end about something that is directed specifically to those of us who follow Jesus. And yet, if you don't, I would say... This is going to be great for you because the last piece of this is optional for you, and yet I think it's worth you leaning in and paying attention because it may give you the peace you've been missing when it comes to this issue. So, that being said, let me start us with a question, simply this. Has there ever been a time in your life when someone wronged you? And I'm not talking about the minor slights. I'm not talking about the little stuff that happens. It's pretty easy to go, it's okay, or I forgive you, and you kind of move on, you forget about it. I'm talking about the things that mark and define your lives. I'm talking about stuff that comes to your mind when I ask this question because you just can't forget it. The minor stuff you forget, the minor stuff you move on, but there's some stuff that really marks us, and unfortunately, it's just part of life. Unfortunately, the answer to this question for all of us is yes, we all have a story. Matter of fact, if we were honest, we all have stories, don't we? We have stories of people who lied to us or lied about us, And it marked us or it defined us. And it still, it maybe not impacts us, but it still, we carry it with us to this day. It still uh, reminds us of some things we got to pay attention to. It still throws up the caution flag from time to time in certain situations. We all have stories of people who cheated us or cheated on us. We all have stories of people who betrayed us, who hurt us, who misrepresented us. People who decided that they were going to destroy our reputation or they were going to say something and in the process of it, that was the end result. People who falsely accused us of things. We, we all have stories of that. And whenever we find ourselves in one of these situations where we've been legitimately, significantly wronged, we only have two options. There are only one of two responses. One is, and we're all familiar with this, one is simply to hold a grudge. One is to pick up a grudge, and this is the one that feels natural to all of us, if we could just admit that. It it feels like the right option. One is to say, okay, you did that. I'm not going to be fooled again. I'm holding a grudge. And when you hold a grudge, it feels very easy. As I said, it feels very natural. It feels very enjoyable. As a matter of fact, here's what's so great about holding a grudge. Holding a grudge feels like justice is being served. Isn't that true for you? Holding a grudge is true for me. Holding a grudge, you feel like, okay, I'm not letting you off the hook. I'm not going to let you just get away with that. 
I'm going to hold this grudge in the process of holding this grudge. I'm going to make sure that some form of justice is served against you, that you have to pay in some way for what you did. Now, this is very natural for us, but there are a couple things none of us ever think about when it comes to holding a grudge, and we all have done this. We all know what this feels like. But there are a couple things we never consider when we hold a grudge. One is we're holding the grudge. We're holding the rock. I don't know if you've ever thought of it this way, but the person who actually wronged you is not the one holding the rock. The person who wronged you is not the one who's walking around carrying the grudge. You're carrying the grudge. So you're the one who feels the weight. They don't actually feel the weight. Which you have been in situations where you have realized this and there's nothing that angers you more, is it, than to find somebody who hurts you and then it seems as if they don't care and they are not carrying any weight from the choice that they made. That just infuriates us, doesn't it? But they don't because they're not carrying the grudge. You're carrying the grudge. I'm carrying the grudge. We're the one who holds the weight. And the longer we hold this, what happens? The heavier it feels. The longer we hold this, the more tired we become. And the more fatigued we become and the heavier it feels, the angrier we get. And so the longer we hold the grudge, the longer it holds us. As long as we hold the grudge, we can't move past the grudge. The other thing about grudges that none of us ever consider is as long as you hold a grudge, you will carry this grudge from one stage or season of life to the next, and you won't even consider it. As a matter of fact, the longer you hold a grudge, the more the grudge becomes just a part of your life. In other words, you don't have full freedom when you're holding a grudge. Because again, you, you got a rock in your hand. You got something that's holding you back. You got something that's weighing you down. But the longer you do that, the more natural it feels. The longer you do that, the more normal it becomes for you. And then you forget the fact, I forget the fact, that we're holding a rock. And this just becomes part of life. And we forget what it feels like to experience freedom. And so we go through life and we're slowed down because of the weight of the grudge that we're carrying, but we don't even remember there's a grudge in our hand. I liken this, and not everybody can relate to this, I understand. But I liken this, because we just came out of this season, to young parents who have young children. When your kids are in that stage where they never sleep, you, some of you parents, you remember that stage? When our kids were in that stage that every single night we were up and our kids decided they, they would stretch that out for a few years, not a few months. They were really kind to us. So we, we went a few years where every single night practically we were up with at least one of the kids. And I say we very generously, okay? It's really Jen, but, but I'm going to take some credit. So we were up a lot. She, she would wake me up when she got out of bed. It was very disrespectful of her. Anyway, so just, just kidding, babe, wherever you are. So, so you get to the point after a period of time, if you're used to not sleeping and you're used to going you know, low on sleep, you just get to the point where that feels normal. And you forget, and I'll, I'll never forget when our kids finally started sleeping through the night and we got two nights, three nights, four nights in a row. I'm telling you, we hadn't had this in a, three, four years. We got, we got three, four nights in a row and then it went to a week. And then it went to two weeks. And I remember Jen and I looking at each other going, we forgot what this feels like to be rested. This is amazing. Well, it's kind of the same thing with a grudge. You carry a grudge around. You, you just forget. You forget you're holding the rock. You forget it's not normal. You forget what it's like to have freedom and not to, be, not to have this weight on you. And so you just carry it along with you from one stage or season of life to the next. And you know what happens when you do that? This grudge keeps showing up in every stage of life and in every relationship that you have. 
And because what comes along with this grudge, what comes along with this weight is anger, you find yourself angry at that person and angry at that person and angry at that person. And quite honestly, it's irrational, disproportionate anger. It doesn't feel that way to you. But it's obvious to everybody else. And everybody else is going, I don't think I'm actually the one who created that response in you. I think you, you had that problem before you ever started working here. I think you had that problem before we ever started dating. I think you had that problem before we ever got married. But you have lost sight of the original source of your hurt, the original source of your pain, the original source of your anger, because this has just become a part of your life. So this really doesn't make a lot of sense to carry a grudge, but it feels so natural, it feels so normal, it feels easy, it's quite honestly on the front end very enjoyable, and it feels like it's the only way for justice to be served. Now, there is another option whenever you and I are wronged. You already know what it is. I don't have to tell you. And quite honestly, some of you are in a situation right now where the wound is so fresh or the pain is still so raw or real to you or the hurt was so deep that you don't want me to talk about it. You're going, nope, I'm not interested in option number two. I don't care if the grudge is difficult. Option number one doesn't make a lot of sense, but it's better than option number two. And I get that because there's something in all of us that resists this idea of, no, I'm not going to, I'm going to lay down the grudge. I'm not going to carry that around. I'm just going to extend forgiveness. Forgiveness. There's something in all of us that says, nope, that's not a viable option. And I want to dive in for just a minute as to what it is inside of all of us that tends to resist this idea of forgiveness. So let me start by giving uh, you a definition just to get us all on the same page. Here's what forgiveness is. Forgiveness means to cancel the debt. That's all it means. Every time you are wronged, there is a debt-debtor relationship created between you and the other person. Every time you wrong someone, there's a debt-debtor relationship. You're just on the debtor side. But this is why we always use terminology like I owe them an apology or they owe me an apology. They, they need to make up for that. They need to pay, pay, uh, pay that back, you know, because we just intuitively know. We never call it a debt-debtor relationship, but we intuitively feel there has been a debt created. There is an inequality in this relationship now. Well, all forgiveness is, is saying, you owe me that, I'm going to cancel the debt. You owe it to me to make up that. You owe it to me to pay me back that. You owe it to me to give me that much money. You owe me that money, you took that money, you owe me that money. You took my reputation, you owe me my reputation. You lied about me, you owe it to me to apologize, and you owe it to me to set the record straight and tell the truth. You, you stepped into a situation here where you intentionally did some things to hurt me, You've got to make that up to me in some way. You owe me, you owe me, you owe me. You rob me of some opportunities. You rob me of the chance to spend more time with my child. You rob me of the chance to, to have one marriage, you know, where we stayed in love, happy together forever. You rob me of trust. Whatever the thing is, it can be a tangible or intangible thing. But you took something from me. We intuitively know there is a debt-debtor relationship that's created. And forgiveness just means I'm going to look at you and I'm going to decide that thing that you took from me you don't owe that to me anymore. I'm not going to expect you to pay me back or to give me back what you took. I'm canceling the debt, which just makes all of us go, that is so, so wrong because they're getting off the hook. As a matter of fact, here's what runs through our minds. See if this is familiar. If I forgive, well, justice isn't being served. If I forgive, they're off the hook. If I forgive, I have to resume the relationship. Why would I do that? If I forgive, i got to trust them again. Well, that's just irresponsible and irrational. I would never do that. So I want to address this for just a minute. First of all, let me start with these first two. The fact that if I cancel the debt and forgive you, justice won't be served, and you're off the hook. 
for those of us who are Christians, we believe something a little differently. At least we believe it in our head, but when it comes to this practically, we have a hard time living it out. But the truth is, those of us who are Christians believe that it is not our right or position to serve justice anyway. That ultimately God is the judge and jury, and he's the one who says he will make sure justice is served. And sometimes he does it on this earth. Sometimes he does it through the form of government, who he's given the power and responsibility to enforce justice. Sometimes he does it through some other authority figure. Sometimes it doesn't happen until a person stands face to face with God. But you need to know when you're in the middle of wrestling with grudge or forgiveness, grudge or forgiveness, you don't have to worry about if I forgive, justice won't be served. Because justice is not yours to serve. You can trust your heavenly father has promised he will take care of that for you. Now, the other two things on here are also tricky for us. This idea of, okay, well, if I forgive them, then I guess it's just everything's good. I just forgive and forget, and we go on as if it wasn't a big deal. Well, no, that's disingenuous. That's dishonest, isn't it? If it hadn't, if the, by the very fact that it wounded you, it was a big deal. Okay, so to say, oh, it's not a big deal, let's just move on, that's not actually forgiveness. That's not acknowledging the depth at which a debt was created. No, you were wounded. It's a big deal. You don't have to just resume the relationship as if nothing happened. And forgiving doesn't mean you have to step in and just trust them again. I love the way Henry Cloud describes this. I want to unpack this for just a minute. This is going to be really, really helpful for a lot of you, and it's going to be new information for many of you that's going to clear up a lot of the confusion and a lot of the frustration that you have felt around this idea of forgiveness. First of all, here's what he says. Forgiveness has to do with the past. Now, this is key. Forgiveness isn't about the present. It's not about the future. Forgiveness is all about what took place in the past, the death that was created in the past. And this, this is the point I don't want you to miss. Forgiveness only requires one person to be involved. And that person is the person who was wronged. Forgiveness does not require the cooperation of you and the person who wronged you. Forgiveness only has to do with you. Because whether that person is remorseful or not, whether that person is repentant or not, whether that person is apologetic or not, whether that person comes to you and says, I'm so sorry, I didn't mean to hurt you, or I did it on purpose and I was so wrong, whether that person does that or they're so brazen and arrogant and proud that they don't care, they don't take responsibility, or they brag about what they did, it does not matter. It has no impact on forgiveness because forgiveness is simply a choice that the wrong person, the wronged person makes towards the person who wronged them. It does not require the cooperation of the person who offended them. It is me deciding on my own. I don't even have to have a conversation with them. It's me deciding on my own. Here's what they took from me, and I am choosing to cancel the debt. Now, we'll talk more in a minute about why it would make so much sense for you and for me to do that. But I just want you to remember, forgiveness is just a you thing, and it has to do with what happened in the past. It is different than reconciliation. Reconciliation has to do with the present. Reconciliation requires two people cooperating. Forgiveness is just, I can do that, I don't need your cooperation. But now, if I want the relationship reconciled between us, then it's going to require the cooperation of both of us in the present. Now, here's all reconciliation means. Reconciliation just means to take two things that are out of alignment and bring them into alignment. So, for the sake of our discussion today, reconciliation means my relationship with you is out of alignment. And I want to do everything I can to bring it back into alignment again. 
It has to do with today, I would like to get this relationship reconciled where things are back in agreement and alignment. That's all reconciliation is. But it is impossible for you to reconcile a relationship if the other person doesn't also want to meet you and reconcile it as well. And reconciliation requires more than forgiveness, doesn't it? You know this. Reconciliation requires forgiveness, but it also requires, to use a church term, repentance, or it requires the other person owning and acknowledging the extent to which they wronged you. If you don't have both of those things in place, I'm owning what I did, and I'm canceling the debt of what you did. If both of those things aren't in place, you can't have reconciliation. But this is very different than just forgiveness. And I feel like a lot of times we get this lumped together and then we think, well, you know, I, we just can't make it work and we just haven't forgiven and everything because I tried and they wouldn't. No, they're two separate things. They're two separate things. You can forgive and you can move forward in peace even if there's not reconciliation. If the other person's not willing to cooperate with you and you've done all you can do, then you can live at peace even if the relationship is never, ever reconciled. Now, those two things, forgiveness and reconciliation, they are different than trust. That's a whole third component. Trust has to do with the future. And trust, once again, is primarily a one-person thing, but it's not on you as the wronged person. It is on the person who did the wronging. Trust looks into the future and says, Okay, you broke trust because of what you did. Now you have to rebuild trust over time. In other words, you have to prove by your actions, not just your words, by your actions, that you are trustworthy once again. So again, this is different than reconciliation. You can be reconciled with a person. You can forgive a, a person can come to you and say, hey, I, I was wrong, I'm owning that. You can forgive them. That does not mean you have to trust them. Trust is built over time, and trust is based on actions. It has to do not with the present. It has to do with the future. Now, the reason I bring up these distinctions is simply this. Because it is possible for you to forgive someone, and there never be reconciliation or trust, even though you try. But you to live at peace, and you to be good. And you not to carry around the weight of the grudge that is so natural for us to carry. It is possible for you to extend forgiveness and for you to be reconciled with a person. But that relationship never resume and be the way it was before. Because that person never proves that they're worthy of that level of trust again. It takes all three components to have forgiveness, reconciliation, and trust. Which means some of you are in situations where you have extended forgiveness. The other person doesn't care if they get it or not. And it's eating you alive and it shouldn't eat you alive. You should just lay down the grudge and go ahead and live at peace. You've done everything you can do. Some of you are in a situation where you have forgiven and you have reconciled, but that person still hasn't proven that they're trustworthy. And you feel guilty because you put up some very healthy boundaries. Because forgiveness doesn't mean that you just let them keep doing the same thing over and over again. So you put up some boundaries, but you feel guilty because you don't feel like you should have if you really forgave them. No, it's fine. You can forgive and reconcile and still have healthy boundaries because they haven't proven they're worthy of trust like you'd originally given them. People sometimes have healthy boundaries when it comes to reconciliation. They have healthy boundaries when it comes to trust. And all of that is perfectly fine. So, you have two options. One's to hold a grudge. One's to forgive. Every time you're wrong deeply, this is, this is a choice you make and I make. And we make it subconsciously often, but this is... These are only two options. 
Holding a grudge feels great in the moment, but is very painful to us over time. Holding a grudge feels good in the moment, but is destructive in the long run to your own heart, to your own relationships, to your own life. Interestingly enough, forgiveness is the exact opposite. Forgiveness is very, very hard in the moment, but it is so healthy in the long run for you. Now, up to this point, whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, all of this applies to you. And at this point, you could say, okay, well, you know, logically and rationally, it makes sense. And I guess, you know, forgiveness makes a little more sense than holding a grudge. Maybe I'll try to do that. Here's the problem with that. This is not a rational, logical choice, is it? It's not. These are not rational, logical issues. These are emotional issues. And emotions cloud judgment, and emotions often take what's logical and rational and they push them to the side, which is why even though you could know everything and believe everything we just talked about, and you would still find yourself unwilling to put down your grudge, unwilling to let go, unwilling to cancel the debt, even though you knew it was in your worst interest, you would keep doing it anyway because it is emotional, it is not rational. So in order to forgive, it takes more than knowledge. In order to forgive, it takes a motivation and a strength greater than your own to lay down the rock and to cancel the debt. And Jesus addressed this with his closest followers. Now what we're going to talk about for the next few minutes applies directly to those of us who are Christians. Like we can't wiggle out of this no matter how bad our situation. If you're not a follower of Jesus, this is optional for you, but I think you're going to want to lean in. It's going to help explain some of the, some of the struggle you've had and may give you some solutions to the unforgiveness and grudges that you've wrestled with over time. One day, and I'm guessing it was sparked by the fact that some of Jesus' closest disciples were into it with each other and they were holding grudges. Because one day Jesus decides he's going to address this and he begins to have a conversation with his closest followers about forgiveness and why they should forgive and how they should forgive. And when he gets done explaining to them how they should go about forgiving one another, it creates the same frustration and emotion in them that it did in, or it does in so many of us. And so Peter, who you got to love Peter, he always is voicing the stuff that all of us are thinking and we're too afraid to say. So Peter, when he hears Jesus get done, thinks, oh, no, that can't be right. Like, I need some more clarification. And so he asked Jesus a great question. Here's what he said. Then Peter came to Jesus and asked, well, Lord, how many times shall I forgive my brother or sister who sins against me? Now, this was Peter's way of saying, you just told us we got to keep forgiving. But I'm telling you, there's got to be a limit. All of us know there's got to be a limit. John over here, he keeps doing the same thing to me over and over and over again. You've seen how many times he's done it. doesn't matter how many times I tell him. We talk about it. He comes back and he ends up doing it again. So there's got to be a limit. Now, you, you've got people in your life like this, don't you? Who it just feels like no matter how many times you talk, they keep hurting you, they keep wronging you. They keep hurting you, they keep wronging you. They keep hurting you, they keep wronging you. And you think, okay, at some point you just got to wash your hands of that person and be done with forgiveness. You, you, there, there's got to be a limit. There has to be a cap on how many times I cancel the debt, especially if they keep doing the same thing over and over again. So Peter, not wanting to look too bad, decides he's going to suggest to Jesus what he thought was an extraordinarily generous cap on forgiveness. And so he looks at him before Jesus can say anything. He says this, okay, how many times? Up to seven times? And I think when he said this, all the other disciples laughed. All the other guys just kind of chuckled because they're like, well, that's ridiculous. 
Nobody expected Jesus to say, yep, seven times. Just do it seven times. Keep track, you know, somewhere. And when you get to the seventh time, you're done. That just, that just seemed irresponsible. I think most of them were thinking Jesus might say at most, okay, three times, guys. Give them three chances. Three is more than enough. Okay, fine, it's your in-laws. Two for them, you know. It's a, he thought it, they thought it was going to be narrowed down to this small number. So what Jesus says next shocks them. He says, I tell you not seven times, but 77 times. What he, which was not his way of saying, hey, just keep track, and when you get to 77, you're good. This was his way of saying, there's no limit. There's no limit. And all the guys looked at each other puzzled, probably frustrated, maybe a little angry, because this just seems irresponsible. But stop and think about it for a minute. If everything we just talked about is true, if the longer you hold a grudge, the longer it holds you, if the fact that you're holding a grudge means you're carrying the weight and they're not carrying anything, and you're carrying this from season to season to season, and it's, it's impacting relationship after relationship after relationship, if this is as detrimental to you and to me as Jesus taught it was, then of course Jesus would say this. He would say, no, no, it doesn't matter how many times they do something against you. You've got to cancel the debt and forgive them every time. You've got to keep laying down the grudge because it's in your best interest. It doesn't mean the relationship will be reconciled. That requires something entirely different. But you've got to do your part. You've got to cancel the grudge. And then before they can protest too much, Jesus tells one of his famous made-up stories that he would often tell which had a very, very significant point. And here's the story that he told. He says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven, they probably all rolled their eyes like, oh boy, here we go again. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And as he began the settlement, a man who owed him 10,000 bags of gold was brought to him. Now, let me just bring this into our context, okay? In the first century, one bag of gold, one bag of gold equaled 20 years of income, 20 years of wages. So 10,000 bags of gold equaled 200,000 years of income. Or in our currency today, in our economy today, 10,000 bags of gold would equal, equal about $4 billion. Billion with a B. Jesus is using a lot of hyperbole and exaggeration. He's making the most extreme case. He says there is a guy who owed his king $4 billion. You think you have debt problems. You don't have debt problems. This is a real debt problem. Four billion dollars and the king says you've got to settle up the account so the story continues jesus says since he was not able to pay of course he wasn't the master ordered that he and his wife and his children and all that he had be sold to repay the debt now not sold because well i'm going to get four billion dollars back out of it that wasn't the point that wasn't going to happen this was jesus is saying this was the king's way of saying you know what you're just going to have to pay for your responsibility you're going to have to face the consequences of your choices. And this is what they would do in the first century. If you owed too much debt and you couldn't pay it back, they would either sell you off or they would put you in debtor's prison. Either way was a terrible option. You'd lose your freedom. So when this man who's in so much debt, when this debtor hears this, here's what he does. At this, the servant fell on his knees before him. Be patient with me, he begged, and I will pay back everything, which is just ridiculous. You can't pay back everything. He clearly didn't have the resources to pay back $4 billion. So what's the king going to do? Well, this is why Jesus is such a great storyteller. Because what we would expect the king to do is actually not what he does. This is where Jesus introduces the first twist in the story. 
He says this, the servant's master took pity on him. He canceled the debt. That's forgiveness. He canceled the debt. And he let him go. Now, it's a made-up story, but just imagine that you're this debtor and this happens to you. What do you feel in that moment? You walk out of there that day feeling relief, feeling gratitude, feeling generosity. You have just had the most extraordinary burden lifted off of your shoulders. A debt you could never repay has been canceled by another. So you would expect him to demonstrate that to others. And Jesus says, when that servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred silver coins. Now, to give you a little comparison, this is where Jesus was using extremes to help us understand this. This guy owed $4 billion. The man who owed him something, a hundred silver coins, equaled $4,000 in today's economy. So as you're hearing this story, as Jesus' disciples are listening to this, they're thinking, well, of course he's going to show up, and because of the gratitude and the generosity that he has just experienced, he's going to turn around and extend that, extend that to this guy who owns him a small, owes him a small fraction of what he owed the king. But this is, again, where Jesus introduces another twist. He says he grabbed the guy who owed him $4,000, and he began to choke him. It's just an extreme reaction, isn't it? Pay back what you owe me, he demanded. And his fellow servant fell to his knees and begged him, be patient with me and I will pay it back. Does that sound familiar? That should have triggered something, if nothing else. But he refused. Instead, he went off and had the man thrown into prison until he could pay the debt. And when the other servants saw what had happened, they were outraged and they went and they told their master, the king, everything that had happened. And then the master called the servant in and he says this, you wicked servant. He could have also said, you foolish servant. You fool, what were you thinking? I canceled all that debt of yours because you begged me to. Shouldn't you have had mercy on your fellow servant just as I had mercy on you? And in anger, Jesus says, his master, the king, handed him over to the jailers to be tortured until he should pay back all that he owed. And then Jesus looked at the guys around him who didn't want to forgive, who didn't want to cancel the debt, who didn't want to continue to extend that kind of generosity and gratitude towards the people who wronged them. And he said this, This is how my heavenly Father will treat each of you unless you forgive your brother or sister from your heart. In other words, Jesus said, Okay, I know when you're wronged, it's emotional. But I just want you to gain a little perspective. I just want you to remember, for those of you who follow me, for those of you who are Christians, for those of you who have embraced the grace of your Heavenly Father, you had a $4 billion debt you had to settle with God. You had a debt way bigger than you could ever repay. And the whole point of me showing up on this earth and dying and rising again was to pay your debt. Your Heavenly Father, this is true for all of us, your Heavenly Father has already canceled your debt and extended forgiveness to you. And now somebody comes along and they wrong you and they owe you four grand and you forget about the four billion dollars that's been canceled and you, you refuse to cancel the four thousand dollar debt. You refuse to extend forgiveness. He says you're just like this man in the story. 
if I could say it this way, Jesus' point was simply that forgiven people are foolish not to forgive. Why? Because forgiven people have already been forgiven so much. If I told you the story that Jesus told and I asked you to use a word to describe the man who refused to forgive, you would use the term foolish. But that is exactly how so many of us are. And it's simply because we get caught up in the emotion and we get caught up in, in all the pain and in all the hurt and we get caught up in holding and carrying a grudge and we lose perspective that we have been forgiven far more. That our Heavenly Father has canceled a debt far greater than the debt that we are being asked to cancel. As a matter of fact, we will never be required or asked to cancel a debt any bigger than the debt that has been canceled for us. So it's foolish for forgiven people not to forgive. It's foolish because you reap what you sow, don't you? This is Jesus' point here. He says you're going to reap what you sow. You refuse to forgive, it's going to come back on you. You're going to need grace at some point in the future, and you will have cut yourself off from your heavenly Father's grace because grace flows down to the humble. It does not flow up to the proud. Pride and grace cannot coexist. A proud person will never embrace grace because they'll never acknowledge they're in need of it. So the most foolish thing a forgiven person can do is to forget they've been forgiven and refuse to forgive. So in light of that, What grudge are you carrying? Why are you carrying it? You should answer that question. You've you got to wrestle with that until you get to the heart of it. Why are you carrying the grudge you're carrying? And how's it working for you? How's it been working in your other relationships? How's it working with your family relationships? How's it been working at work? How, how's it working in terms of bringing you more peace and making you happier in life? How's it working in terms of your relationship with your Heavenly Father? It doesn't, does it? You know, people who struggle with forgiveness, they struggle for one of two reasons. Either they've never experienced forgiveness themselves of that magnitude. And maybe for some of you, that's it. Maybe you consider yourself a Christian, but the reality is it's never been personal to you. You have never embraced the extraordinary forgiveness your Heavenly Father has offered you. You've kept trying to earn and earn and earn, and I think I deserve and I'm a pretty good person. And what you need to do is just humble yourself enough to acknowledge, I need that forgiveness. i got a debt bigger than I can pay. And the minute you do that, it will change everything. People who struggle with forgiveness have either never experienced it at that magnitude or they've never grasped the full measure of the forgiveness they've experienced. And some of you, you've been forgiven by your Heavenly Father in an extraordinary way, and you have missed how great it is. You have missed the magnitude of it. But the minute you understand that you're forgiven, it will be so clear to you that you are foolish not to forgive. You're foolish not to forgive that person. You're foolish not to forgive yourself. Because if your heavenly father is willing to forgive you, how can your standard be any higher than his? How can you not forgive yourself? And how can you not forgive others? So, this week, would you lay down the rock? Would you give up the grudge? Would you cancel the debt and forgive? Maybe you need to pursue reconciliation on top of that. Maybe you need to put some healthy boundaries in place and stop trusting somebody who's not trustworthy. But it doesn't mean you can't forgive. It doesn't mean you can't find the freedom that comes with that forgiveness. Let me pray for us. Father, I'll be the first to acknowledge this is so much easier to talk about than it is to do. 
So I don't know where this lands, and I don't know all the pain and the emotion and the wounds and the hurt that go along with this for people. My prayer is simply this. Would you give us the wisdom to know what to do with this? And then would you give us the ability, the power, and the strength to cancel those debts and to forgive because that depends solely on us. Help us to lay down the grudge so that we can love better and so we can be better loved. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.